This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on iOS developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average iOS developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $2,000 signing bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the iFreaks link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash iFreaks. This episode is sponsored by Dev Mountain. Dev Mountain is a coding school with the best world-class learning experience you can find. Dev Mountain is a 12-week full-time development course. With only 25 spots available, each cohort fills quickly. As a student, you will be assigned an individual mentor to help answer questions when you get stuck and make sure you are getting the most out of the class. Tuition includes 24-hour access to campus and free housing for our out-of-state applicants. In only 12 weeks, you'll have your own app in the App Store. Learn to code. It's time. Go to devmountain.com slash ifreaks. Listeners of iFreaks will get a special $250 off when they use the coupon code iFreaks at checkout. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 103 of the iFreaks show. Today in our panel, we have Andrew Madsen. Hi, from Salt Lake City. Alondo Brewington. Hello, from North Carolina. I should say, Alondo Golden Ticket Brewington. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> so you know the lottery's fair when all of us don't go because we're such big shots in the iOS community, you know? I think we get the automatic ticket, but it doesn't work that way. Well, congratulations, Alondo. Thank you. I'm excited about going this year. Yeah, I'm jealous. I actually ended up deciding not to put my name in. I just decided that on the off chance that I got a ticket, I couldn't afford it. So no trip for me. Yep. I put mine in, didn't win. I'll be going to AllConf, so I'll be in the area. Awesome. I'll, fun. Out. I'll have to have an iFreak meetup. Get some listeners out there, too. Oh, yeah, definitely do that. Yeah, you guys should. So what are we what are we talking about today? So today we're going to talk about persistence. Persistence. What's yep, the, if you what's persist that? at your goals, you will succeed them. <laughs> I do feel like that a lot of times when I'm programming. So if you persist at core data, will you just make more crashes? You definitely use the uh, stock <laughs> sample code. <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting question. But seriously, what does persistence mean? Well, in my, you know, my, 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 I guess my working definition is basically keeping data, um, that's not sort of like rely, you're not relying on data that's stored on a remote server. It's going to live on the device and it's going to live beyond the current instance of the running app. I like that. So it's not data on a server. It's not data in RAM that goes away when the app quits. It's data that needs to stick around. So what are some common approaches for persistence? Well, I know the approach that a lot of brand new iOS developers find and like because it's really easy, and that's to use NS user defaults to store everything. <laughs> this is true. Well, okay, you bring up a good thing because depending on how much data you actually need to persist and what you need to keep, that's not necessarily an untenable solution. I mean, it can work. It just depends. Uh, I think people go overboard with it. In fact, I, I kind of came at the, from the reverse I was using one of the other methods that we'll discuss later and sort of backed into using NS user defaults, but only because my my primary understanding was that it was for very small pieces of data that, you know, sort of like maybe preferences and things like that, that you wouldn't necessarily need a full-fledged uh, persistent solution for. Yeah, so my, my own thought on that is that 
NS user defaults was never intended to be a general purpose data storage for your app. It's meant to store preferences, and you can use it for things that are not really preferences, but yeah, don't go overboard. So it's meant to handle small amounts of simple data. So what are some things that you should put in NS user defaults? Well, preferences are the big one. If your app has settings, that's the place to store them. And on iOS, that's true, but particularly on the Mac, that's true because users have access to the stuff stored in NS user defaults with the command line tool defaults, and also the, those get stored in a standard location in library slash preferences in PLIS. Okay. So, I mean, you're you're sort of violating somewhat of a contract with users by not storing your preferences there, I think. No, definitely a good idea to store your preferences there. What are some examples of things you should not store there? I'll start. Passwords. Oh, that's a good one. Actually, don't store your passwords unless they're encrypted. But that's a discussion for a different day. Yeah, but even then we have an API for that, right? But I've seen people who have their all of the data that their app needs to store. Say it's you know some user contact management app. So they've got records about people and people's addresses, and they've got images for the people and they're storing all of that in NS user defaults, and that's not really the way you're supposed to do things. And so I guess what the question is, well, what what's the next step from there? NS user defaults does have the advantage of being really simple. You don't need a lot of code to use it. And that's I, true. It's, it's in there. It's baked in. You can just use it, set it to user defaults, and the next time you launch your app, it'll be there. Right. So that's, that's a benefit nice. of it. But the next step, you're talking about storing to a file system. What would you do next? Again, for simple stuff, plists can be an option. You'll make your objects so that they conform to NS coding, and then it's pretty easy to use an NS key on archiver to store them to a, a plist file on disk and read them back. There's a little bit more code than NS user defaults, but not a whole lot. Okay, you talked about the NS coding. What is that? NS coding is a protocol that your own classes can adopt, and uh, there are just two methods that they need to implement, encode with coder and init with coder. And when you implement those methods, essentially all you do is store all of your object's properties off into this thing called an NS coder that you're handed with those methods. And then the nice thing about that is if you've got, say, an array of, of objects that are instances of classes that conform to NS coding, you can use NSKeyArchiver to store that whole array to disk, and you don't have to go through a for loop and um, you know pull out some standard representation. The system handles that all for you, or NSKeyArchiver does. So that's sort of the standard way to make your custom classes so that they can be persisted to disk and reloaded, or sometimes people say so that they can be serialized and deserialized. Okay, I frequently heard people talk about plist formats. How are those related? Well, when you store, when you use NS Keyed Archiver to archive some hierarchy of NS coding compliant objects off to a file, it gets stored as a plist. Okay, is this what's happening when you say you have a dictionary and you write to file? Uh, yeah, same thing. So okay. a lot of the system classes already conform to NS coding. And, but, but there's a little bit of a nuance there in that we have the plist classes, right? So you can. I can't remember them off the top of my head there. NS dictionary, NS data, NS string. Help me fill them out, but those can be stored to a plist by default, and there are actually some APIs that will say that they only take objects that are in the set of plist classes. Yeah, it's a common first error when trying to persist things to a file system. Like it fails, you have no idea why. I'm like, oh, because I tried to save an int or a float or something like that, and that just won't work. Do we have more to, to dig on that? 
Um, I've used plist a bit more recently in an app I'm currently working on. I don't use it as a as a way to save data though. It's basically read only data at this point. Uh, it's persistent data, and really the thing that I don't really like about it at this stage, I know I could probably I could write to the plist. It's just as I'm using it, the data is not changing frequently. But if it did, I definitely would consume a service. I'd move that data to a web service and make API calls and then maybe persist like a local cache of that data or a local store and update as needed when that data changes upstream. So I think the important point about plists is that this is sort of a the next step above NS user defaults. And in fact, NS user defaults uses plists behind the scenes. I mean, that's exactly what it's doing. But it's sort of the next step beyond that where you have some control over what's being saved, but there's still a lot of help there. And the APIs for storing and retrieving that data can be very, very simple. So what are the downsides? Why, why not just use property lists for everything now? Well, I definitely don't think, I mean, if if you're sort of wanting to get some sort of like relational aspects or using, trying to think of some more advanced features that you that you would not get with plist, you would definitely, like querying the data, things of that nature, um, there's some definitely some more powerful options available to you if you wanted to do something a little more advanced as far as how you retrieve the data and how much of it you wanted to load at a particular time. Yeah, so with plists, you basically just, you know, assuming you're just using the, the APIs that are built in for them, NS keyed on archiver, essentially, um, you just get, you just load the whole plist up at once. You, there's no way to just get some piece of it that you want out. You have to load the whole thing up and then into memory and then find the data you want. And there's no API for, for searching or querying or anything like that. plists use XML on disk, so, Another big downside to property lists is that they're not very performant. If you've got a huge set of data, and particularly if you're storing binary data, you're putting that all in a big XML file. And XML is good for some things, but performance with huge data sets is not one of its strengths. Okay, so it sounds like plist is good for things with complex data, so that wouldn't be a user setting. Let's say you have a user profile. You maybe want to store an image, something like that, their name. So you can get kind of complex data, but not something you want to store a bunch of data. Like if you have a bunch of users that store all your friends, you wouldn't want to put that into a plist, every friend you have into an array in a plist, because you'd have to load all of that in memory to search through it. And that could be that could be a pain. That would that would be a pretty bad performance. Does that sound right? Sounds good to me. Yeah. So if we do have something like that where we do have a large number of elements that we're creating, you know, friends in our user app, restaurants in a restaurant finder app. What are our options? Well, I can think of at least two that I've seen. One I haven't used, one I've used a good bit. Um, the first one is using SQLite directly. The second one is Core Data. Um, I don't have experience using SQLite directly, at least in iOS. And uh, But I have the very first app I worked on, I was introduced to Core Data. So I was sort of like uh, dunked right into using it. Uh, as soon as I started iOS development, and I was using it pretty frequently until recently, where we don't use a persistence model at all, which is really weird. I feel like I'm regressing in so many ways. I am using NS user default, so like I was saying, I've kind of worked my way back <laughs> down to the simplest uh, solution that uh, you can for persistence. Well, so is whatever you're working on not storing a lot of data? Actually, quite the opposite. We actually consume an API, and we just load it in memory, and we just keep it there. Um, we're looking right now for a persistence solution, and we haven't ruled out core data. We would look, we're looking at some other solutions, but 
Um, we just haven't come to an agreement on, on what we want to implement just yet. Although I, I do believe we're probably going to cross that bridge fairly soon in this, in this current quarter before our next major release. Interesting. Well, so you brought up two options that a lot of people use and those are SQLite and core data. I wanted to add that I think most people, when they use SQLite directly, the co- most common way to do that probably is to use a third party wrapper called FMDB. It's, it's essentially an Objective C wrapper for SQLite. So I kind of want to talk about those two. I've used core data since the API came out in macOS 10, 10.4, and I've used it in really every serious app I've ever worked on, I think. So that's definitely the one I have the most experience. I've really only used SQLite a tiny bit in a, in an app that I did, that I worked on for a contract gig, but I didn't write it. So it was existing code. If you guys have any experience with these two, I'm curious to know what some of the downsides of both approaches are and so pros and cons for both approaches. Why might one want to use SQLite instead of core data? So I'm not sure what the motivation is in most cases. I've inherited some apps that use direct SQLite and it may have been just because the developer was more comfortable with a SQL type approach where you're writing queries. But you do have a lot of things where you have magic strings, you know, in your app doing your queries for you. It's also valuable if you're doing cross platform code. One of the apps I worked with you know, had a Windows app, had a had a Mac app. And so SQLite was one thing that was available on all those platforms and probably available on Android too. So if you wanted to have a cross-platform library, you know, that's an option. We can do that. I didn't dig real heavily in it, and I don't recommend it for most cases. I think there's better approaches, but it, it's an option. And it wasn't terrible. Well, one of the biggest ones that I've heard, and, and again, this is coming from like some of the, the more popular apps that have like lots of records, was that for like a, a really fast update across all records, like you wanted to update a read flag on, you know, tens of thousands of records, that it was a lot easier and a lot faster to do in uh, SQLite versus trying to accomplish that in core data. So that that's one that was held up a lot a, a while ago, although I, they actually added an API for that exact scenario to core data in iOS 8. I think in iOS 8, might have even been iOS 7. Um, but I've heard the exact same thing, which is that SQLite in certain situations performs a lot better than core data. In my experience, it just, the number of records just has not been an issue. So um, it, it's not an example um, where it really applied for me not using core data. Yeah, so that's an interesting point in general, which is that if you're choosing one of these persistence technologies, you know, your exact application is important. If you're only storing 100 records at most, performance is probably going to be fine with any of these solutions. If you're storing millions of records, performance is probably going to be a big deal, and you want to eke out whatever you can get. I think another thing that people that makes people use SQLite beyond just plain familiarity with it, is that you can do really complex queries in SQL, and there are a lot of people that know how to do those. And Core Data really has a pretty much completely different way of querying your your database. And in fact, people who are really into Core Data will tell you Core Data is not meant to be a, a true database like a SQL database is. It's not a relational database like that. It's a object graph persistence framework, is what they say. All right, I'm going to call, call your bluff there. Everyone says that. When you start talking about core data, hey, it's not a, it's not an ORM. It's not a relational mapper. But then they use all the terms that we use for ORM. So what is the difference between an object graph and a, an ORM? Hey, don't ask me. I didn't say I 
knew anything <laughs> about that. I just told All you right. what people say. I have to agree with that because I've heard that same mantra kind of, in fact, when I, the first time coming from Windows and being a big, a heavy Oracle and SQL Server developer, I, I they were drilling it to my head and I still haven't seen that difference. <laughs> it still feels very database and relational to me. Yep, we're very emphatic. It's not a not an RM, but we treat it like one. I I think what people get to is you know it's just a, I'm repeating myself, but it's an object grab. It's not meant to be relational. You know, one relationship is fine. I'm not a huge core data expert, but if you're getting to like many to many relationships, it won't give you the the functionality that you expect in you know a SQL Server, or a Postgres, something like that. So so I was being a little bit silly with that that last comment, but the problem is I know way more about core data than I know about something like SQLite or Postgres or one of the other common database systems. But I, I think one thing that core data does that it's good at is, in fact, managing this big graph of objects where objects can have multiple relationships to other objects, and those relationships are largely managed for you by core data. Keeping the relationships or that relationship graph valid is is done for you. So if you have an object that has a bunch of children and you delete that object, depending on the rules you've specified, core data will take care of deleting all of its children objects for you. It, it will also take care of if you have two objects with a relationship to each other and you set that relationship on, on one of those objects, the corresponding relationship on the other object is automatically set for you by core data. I have the feeling that a lot of the other database systems probably have those kind of features, but I don't know if they're the core features of those databases, and those sort of are core features of core data. That's the feeling I get, but maybe I'm wrong. I think there's some validity to that. I mean, I, I definitely know, I mean, some of those things as far as like, how do you want to handle cascading deletes and things like that are definitely available in uh, something like a SQL Server or Oracle implementation, but it's just a matter of where they are it's not something you necessarily deal with frequently, and it's not at the forefront of sort of the feature set there. Yeah, it's definitely true. I've, I've used cascading deletes in there, but generally I don't do a lot with it. And it's been a while since I've done really heavy database work where I've needed to, but I think that's fair. Another thing that separates the two, like an object graph does not need to be persisted. You know, it could be a memory, which is one thing you don't really think about when you're doing a database. Yeah, and in fact, we call core data a persistence framework, and, and obviously that's how it's most often used to, to save things to disk, but it can be run entirely in memory and still do all that object graph management stuff without saving to disk. Yeah, I definitely think that's one of the, the things that, I, that really interested me when I first started working with it, and I haven't really taken full advantage of it, is that when you have the persistence coordinator, you actually have the option of, of where you want to persist that data should you decide. And it's definitely something that I think is, as I sort of deepen my knowledge and experience with it, I'll definitely try to take advantage. I don't, I, I can't think of a, a case off the top of my head. It's one of those nice to have features though. I like that in the, the way that the, the solution is architected. I think for me, the biggest thing right now in working with that is sort of learning a better way of managing sort of the data that's available and accessible sort of in the main context and start to take advantage of these uh, additional contexts now in, in the later revisions of core data that I have access to and, uh, and, and implementing it properly because I've run into some problems before. Well, that that's actually an interesting point and one that a lot of people hold up as one of the big problems with core data, which is that it's really a pain to use in a multi-threaded environment. And um, especially 
in the olden days, that was really true because there was not really, there was no API level support for multi-threading and core data. There was sort of, there were sort of these rules. You could use core data on multiple threads, but you had to follow these really strict rules and the API didn't give you any help. And that's not true anymore. They've added API now for, for having uh, multiple contexts on different queues, really, and they've made things much, much better and easier for doing multi-threaded core data, and it, it is possible to use core data from multiple threads now, but it's still tricky, and I think there are some other persistent solutions that have come out that make some of that easier, so that's one thing to think about when you're choosing a persistent solution. One thing that I, I like, I always like to point out about core data that I think is overlooked and I think it's particularly overlooked by iOS developers because I think it's less common that they need this feature than OS X developers, but Core Data, as part of its uh, object graph management stuff, has complete undo support, undo-redo support, completely for free. So if you have a UI that's creating Core Data objects and changing their properties and all that, it's like trivial to hook up your edit undo menu to your Core Data managed object context and just have undo redo support work without you writing any code and you definitely do not get that free with other persistent solutions so for me that's actually a big one okay you just made me break out into a big kool-aid smile because on one of my apps that is a big big headache and uh, i have to revisit it in an update and one of the problems is i actually walked the user down a trail of changes particularly with additions with some dependent objects and a lot of times the user will cancel all of those changes and I'd love to be able to roll those back. Are you saying that I can do that like as a transaction per se? Like, yeah. So if you look at the NS undo manager API, I mean, really all, all that core data does is, is it creates and exposes a, an undo manager, an instance of NS undo manager to you. And most often you just hook that up to the menu or whatever. Or if it's in an iOS app, you add an undo button. But you you could also use that programmatically to roll back changes. I've never done anything more than just sort of hooking it up to the UI in a really simple way. But I don't think there's any reason at all why you couldn't do stuff that's much more sophisticated. And in fact, NS Undo Manager has an API for undo groupings. Mm. And you can also disable and enable undo registration, which is something I've used. But I think what you could do is create a grouping like when they start this flow, whatever it is that you're doing. I'm assuming you have like a series of, uh, of UI that they walk through. You could start a group at the beginning and then whenever they cancel, you've got this whole group of actions that they've taken and you can undo them all at once. At least I think that should work. And it would be quite a bit simpler than having to manage that all yourself. So I think that can be a really powerful feature that doesn't get discussed often enough. Awesome. Another thing Core Data has that doesn't get talked about a whole lot and is maybe not useful to a lot of people, but it can use different stores for its back end. So most often I think people use the SQLite store, but there's also a binary store and on OS X there's an XML store, which can be nice for debugging anyway. And you can write your own custom persistent store. So if you want to, you know, have your Core Data stuff get stored in your own custom file format or possibly even send it to a web API or something like that. That's all possible. So I've got a new uh, open source library idea. we got a core data wrapper backed by NS user defaults. What do you think? <laughs> yeah. You should okay, do it, Jane. Throwing that out there. Anyone can take it and run with it. Just give me credit. <laughs> Actually, no. Don't do it. Yeah, no, you don't want credit for that. <laughs> if you do this, it wasn't me. I will deny anything under oath. But that's interesting. So the typical approach we're doing 
core data is the SQLite backed, and that's what most of us are talking about. Have any of you run into projects or done any different implementations of it? Uh, I haven't written a custom implementation, but I did do, well, story time. My first core data app, which is an app that I still sell called Ether, is a document-based app on the Mac. I didn't really know anything about any of this when I started, and so I chose the XML store type because I thought, oh, XML, it's nice, and I could open them up in a text editor and see what was going on. That actually worked great for a while, but I had all the problems that we sort of talked about with plists, where once you got up to a few thousand records, performance started to get really slow, and particularly it started to get really slow for searching. If you wanted to search through the records in the document, it just took forever. And the cool thing about it was that switching to SQLite was like a one-line code change, and then suddenly it just worked, and I didn't have to change anything else that I did in the code. It was like when I set up the persistent store, I tell it I want to use SQL instead of XML, and everything else worked fine, and I got a huge performance boost, too. For free, okay. So here's a, here's a consulting tip. So you start off with your app in XML. <laughs> yeah, right. It feels so slow, then you're like, oh, I'm a genius. It was going to take me a week to fix it and go off and, you know, go on vacation or something and bill for the whole week. <coughs> Actually, just, just saying, I'm full of bad ideas today. Well, unfortunately, Let's... in that case, I was paying myself my standard self-employment contract rate of 15 cents an hour to work on my own app. Here we go. So. So if anyone wants any stock tips, that's not the thing I should be giving, <laughs> giving out today. <laughs> So XML is one of the stock options for core data backing. Are there other ones that Apple gives for free? There's the binary store type. Okay. I can't really say anything about that. I don't know why you would want to use it. Yeah, remember once hearing a case that someone made for binary. I can't remember off the top of my head. It sounded good at the time when I heard it, though. That's all I can say right now. I mean, it would probably be a bit faster than XML, but not by a ton. You probably still have to load it all into memory. So I, I can't really think of a clear use case where I would say that's the way to do it. Yeah, yeah, I really yeah. don't know. Unless you had a binary data format that you're used to using, you could download it from a web service that you already have. Like, oh, we want to read out of this binary data format. Well, sure, but the binary store I'm talking about is Core Data's own binary store. So it's like oh. some opaque, I don't know, who knows what the format is. It's defined by Apple, and I don't oh. think it's public. Okay, yeah, I don't know. All right, we've stumped the iFreaks. We have no idea why anyone would use a binary store. There's also the in-memory store, so we kind of touched on that, but you can just have core data store everything in memory and not use the whole persistence part of it. So what are some of the advantages of using core data just in memory without persisting it? Well, it should be really fast because it doesn't have to hit the disk. And if you're using it for data that you you just want the object graph management stuff for data that you're not actually storing to disk, or maybe you're even storing it to disk later in your own format, you could use the in-memory store for that. But of course, the disadvantage is that all of your data is in memory all the time. So in general, memory usage is going to be worse. Are there any provisions for preventing a crash if you load too much stuff in memory? That's a good question. I don't know. I've never used the in-memory store. Yeah, you'd have to, I mean, it seems like you'd really have to be trying to take advantage of some of the features of the object graph, because I can't understand why you would do, like, NS-managed objects versus just having a bunch of NS objects loaded in memory. Well, unless you want the relationship management or undo support or something like that. Okay. That's the only thing I can think of. But like I said, I've never actually used the in-memory store. So what are some of the, the big headaches people encounter when trying to do core data? 
the first time. Well, let's see. Multi-threading is a big one. It's it's a little bit tricky, although that again has gotten better. But um, it's gotten better with iOS seven. iOS actually iOS five, I think, was the five, first one okay. that added some of these sort of what we call modern APIs. So they, they they've been around for a while now. The other thing that I think that trips people up with core data that that really is kind of weird is that objects that are core data objects are subclasses of NS managed object, mm-hmm. but they're not. So they're they're I mean they are regular Objective-C objects, but they're not exactly like a normal NS object subclass. I mean, the big one regarding multi-threading is that if a given core data object is in a certain managed object context, you can't access that object. You can't even read its properties from a thread other than the correct one, other than the one that's associated with its context. And so it's in a multi-threading environment, it's kind of weird that you have these objects that even reading properties from them at all, period, is just not thread safe. You have to be on the correct thread or the correct queue. That's a little bit weird. I mean, it's a it's a complicated API, so I think another thing that gets to people is that there's a, a lot of what you would call boilerplate just to set up the stack. And there's example code, and on OS X there are even, when you create an app, there's a checkbox to make it use core data. I don't know if, I can't remember if that's on iOS, but... Uh, if, if you... There was a there was when you created a project and to use core data, and that's usually the biggest objection I hear is just it's too much boilerplate code, and you have to watch out for some of that code too because of how it handles exceptions and uh, and crashing uh, automatically. You have to make sure you do not use that. Yeah, uh, so that's the other thing. You get this boilerplate code from Apple, and it's really not quite right, you know. So you're not going to know that. So you go out and find somebody else's got their version that fixes these problems and whatever, but that's not exactly beginner friendly. So what exactly are the problems with the boilerplate code? It's a lot of it for, for starters. Um, I think just learning, like when I was first introduced to it, I really was sort of intimidated by the entire stack. Just it was it just seemed to be a lot of pe- moving pieces uh, when you first get started. Because, I mean, when you're talking about just the simple object model that you want to sort of, you know, create and use, um, you're not really thinking in terms of all the internal plumbing that you need to create in order to do that. You, you'll get used to it, but it, it definitely is intimidating in, at the outset. Well, I, I want to bring up a, a, a few other things. I, maybe you guys have some experience with them. I'd be interested to know. Uh, lately, there have been some other persistence frameworks or libraries that have come up that are made by third parties that are starting to get pretty popular. I think Realm is the biggest, or the you know the one I've heard the most about. Um, there's another one called Yap Database that I've heard recently people talking about and then of course fmdb is is a big one but these are what you might call replace i mean i think realm even sells themselves as a replacement for core data and i've heard some good things about them but you know we should do a show on realm yeah we should (laughs) i wonder if we could set that up next week maybe (laughs) we'll have to see what we can do next week on the iframes we're talking realm actually that's true and that is a good idea so uh, there's also a CouchDB. Oh yeah, for, that's, for a no that's for a right. NoSQL type approach, which I haven't used heavily, but or I haven't used it all in iOS, but they've got their own backing store, so you do have different options. Are there any pros and cons you're aware of with the different solutions? I should have done my research better. I think Realm is supposed to just be a lot simpler and easier to use than Core Data. And another another thing about it is that it's cross-platform, so they have. Android and iOS versions, which can be a, a big deal for a lot of people that are that are developing their apps for both iOS and Android and want to be able to share data back and forth or even uh, it's hard to share code because you 
got to write it in C++ basically, but that can be a big one. Uh, I get the feeling that Realm makes some of the multi-threading stuff easier, although I don't really know. I guess we'll have a lot of questions for our episode next week. Yeah, I'm only PowerPoint familiar with Realm, but it seems like it does more proper ORM type functionality, you know, getting objects to a database and back in a reasonable fashion, but I'm not sure. But we'll find out. I'm gonna, yeah, I'm looking forward to that episode. That'll be cool to learn about. We should maybe see if we can do an episode about Yap Database, too, because that's another one that I've heard some people that are now huge vocal proponents of this thing, and I'd like to find out more about it. There's a whole part of persistence that I think is relevant to a lot of iOS developers that I'd like to touch on a little bit, and that is that uh, I think these days most iOS apps are consuming some sort of web API, some REST API, and often they'll pull a bunch of data down and you want to put that into some persistent store so that you don't have to hit the network for all that data every single time the app launches. What about actually getting data from, so you've got this JSON API and you need to put it into some persistent store. Uh, How do you do do that? How do people tend to do that? So my basic approach, generally I'm getting the data and manually mapping it and putting in core data, which gives me control over what's happening. There are other approaches where you can do that. I know RESTKit has a way you can you can wire up your core data to your RESTful API calls, and it's all one big solution. So you can get your your GET from your from your API, and it'll actually end up in your data model or in, in core data. It doesn't use the best algorithm for doing that. It's kind of naive. It just goes through every one and does insert each time. At least the last time I looked at it, did. I know uh, Matt Thompson, the person who did AF Networking, they've got a different solution, which does a similar thing. It's more componentized, where you can break out different parts. But for the most part, I I do it manually. Just do it in code, and if it needs to go to core data, it goes to core data. But if not, you know, we do other things with it. And a lot of the apps I work with aren't using core data real heavily. I think it's, if you can get away with it, it's, it's, an, el- it's an element of complexity that you can improve your app with. A lot of the core data apps I've worked with have crash problems just from random things. Not necessarily that you're doing anything wrong, but um, it gets things where you can get crash. And, you know, apps I'm working with, I got the crash crash analytics report for the app I'm working with versus some other apps by the same client. And, like, we're at 100% crash for users. You know, thumbs up. We're still in beta, but, you know, it's like, well, that's easy if you're not doing core data. Yeah, well, I must admit that I, I'm actually a big core data fan, and I think that the problems with it are mostly overblown. But the one app at Mixed In Key where I'm sort of in charge of our our crash report, our crash triage, uh, the only crash we have right now is a core data crash, and it it only comes in. We only see one a week or something like that. It's not a major thing, but that makes it really hard to track down. I'm quite convinced we are doing something wrong, but I have yet to figure out what that is, and I must admit that is sort of frustrating to have this crash that is going on because core data is complicated and we're doing something wrong, and yet it's very difficult to, for me to figure out what that wrong thing is. Yeah, I'll, say, uh, I'll agree with you, Jane. Um, I'm using mostly the apps that I've worked on um, that use core data. I do manual mapping, and the only time I've actually run into crashing issues is if something has changed on the data that's coming from the API, and it's usually something very small, well, I mean, there had been, there were, there was an issue before I worked on last year with regard to like some changes in iOS 8, but, uh, mostly like something, something in the data that comes down and, and in that manual conversion that may cause something to blow up. So that leads to the point, something I wanted to talk about 
with core data, like if you're using a database, SQL Server, Postgres, and you change the data, you'll run a you know, script. If you're doing something like Rails, you'll run a migration to change your database. How do we keep track of core data changes when our data model changes? Well, you've got the different vo- the, uh, different model versions, and you can do the model. You know, you can do you can set the auto migration. And I've only used it for simple migrations, and it has worked really well. But like I said, usually I'm only adding another entity, might add or change uh, a couple of attributes, nothing uh, major. So I don't know how well the auto-migration works when you step outside of additions and maybe a simple like removal or or name change on an attribute. Yeah, so there's this support for lightweight migrations where... Core data can infer your changes. You don't even need to tell it what they were. But it, it, it's limited to pretty simple changes, like adding a property that wasn't there before and that kind of really simple thing. There's also support, though, if you, you know, even for huge changes, you can you can do migration. You have to do more work than that, but Core Data has API built in where you can migrate from one data format to another. And that can be really useful because it's kind of the app that never changes its data model is pretty rare, right? A lot of times adding a new feature means you need to store some some new data or store data differently or something like that. And so migration support is important. So when do these migrations happen? So you, you do this and you update the app. Does it happen when the user in, installs the app for the first time or updates it? No, it happens the first time they, they try to load or your app tries to load up some data that was saved using the old model. So say they had version 1.0 and they had a bunch of data they saved and then they update to 2.0 and they launch it as soon as your, as your code tries to load the old data that was stored in 1.0, um, it will be migrated. And of course that migration can be automatic for simple changes, like we said, but they give you hooks so that even if it's not, it can't be automatic. Uh, you get some pretty easy hooks to do the migration whenever that's updated or whenever a, a old store is opened. And there's even support for doing, I mean, it takes a little bit more work, but there's even support for doing migration across multiple versions. So maybe they used your app back in 1.0, they never updated 2, and then finally they update to 3 and you've changed it twice. You can actually do that migration from 1.0 to 3.0. Does that do it iteratively through each different one, or does it bundle them all together somehow. Well, there are multiple approaches. So if you, depending on the changes that you've made, again, you can go from, you know, for complex mappings, if you do, you create something that's a migration map, I think it's called migration mapping, model mapping, something like that, that tells core data how or how to migrate from the old version to the new version. So you could create a a mapping model that went from version 1 to version 3, in addition to the one that goes from version 2 to version 3. And then it can do it in one pass. But you could also do incremental migration where you go from one to two and then two to three. Oh, very cool. Both approaches are possible. So is there anything in persistence that we should get to for pick time? Uh, I feel like we've talked about a tiny little bit of this subject, and yet we've covered everything I want to cover. Yeah, I think anything else would probably require like a deeper dive into one of those areas, like maybe a deeper dive into core data or, you know, of course, the upcoming realm. So. Very cool. All right. Well, let's get to the picks. Alondo. Okay. I have two picks, and I hope I don't step on anyone else. Um, if you go first, uh, then, you know. I guess that's, that's true. Um, I came across a, a recent blog post, I think it's from last month, from Mark Azara on the Syndicate Martian Care uh, blog on the Core Data Stack, and he talks about some updates and the focus of taking advantage of the new uh, uh, NS Managed Object Context Design approach that he has. 
so I've been reading through. I've, I've gone through it once, and I've oh, actually twice now. And uh, I, I definitely it's helped me sort of think through how I want to approach my rewrite of my my core data app. And the second one is uh, something I just actually found. Thanks to you, Andrew. Um, the NS Hipster uh, article uh, by Dale Mason on uh, NS Undo Manager. Again, it's a good resource. Uh, so I can see how I can approach this, this entire approach to creating uh, sort of a transaction, allowing my users to add uh, sort of these dependent objects and see the best way I can sort of unroll that if they do change their minds or if something happens. So those are my two picks. Very cool. Andrew? Well, I've only got one pick today, and that's the Lytro camera. Woot was having a deal where you could get the first generation Lytro for $60, and it's normally $400. So I got one. It's a few years old, and I'm sure they're trying to clear them out, and that's why I got it so cheap. But it's still fun to play with. It's a camera that instead of taking pictures like a like a traditional camera, it actually stores the... It can detect and store the direction that the light that's hitting it comes from. So it records light rays instead of just light coming into it. And that makes it so that the focus on the picture is not determined at the time you take the picture. You can change the focus later on the fly. So it's kind of cool. I'm having fun playing around with it. And unfortunately, the deal is done, but the technology is cool. And they actually have a newer model that's more like an SLR. It's kind of more a high-end professional sort of camera. Also much more expensive, but that's my pick. Very nice. So I've got one pick. It's more of a life hack. I've been drinking coffee most every day since I was about 15. We had a McDonald's across the street from our high school, so I stopped by there. So I had a pretty serious caffeine tolerance going for a while. And I really life hack that actually like when you first wake up, which when I would first start drinking coffee, you don't really need that much. You kind of, you'll get a dose of cortisol just from waking up. The sun's coming up, doing whatever you're doing. So I said, okay, I'm going to not have coffee the first thing in the morning and wait, you know, hour or two. And it's actually helped quite a bit. So I'm drinking a lot less coffee and I didn't really have a problem with, didn't feel bad or anything, but I actually feel better drinking a little bit less caffeine, feeling a little bit more energy lasting throughout the day. So if you're looking to back off a little bit with your caffeine consumption, just you know start drinking later in the day and works out because you get kind of a, a boost of the cortisol just from waking up and being up. So that's my pick. That does it for the picks. And if you want to support the show, we've created some t-shirts that are available. And the short really need support... Um, we have run into some financial troubles. Andrew's been by the freeway at the sign saying, we'll code for a WWC ticket. And so we really need your help uh, to get these T-shirts built so Andrew can get his ticket next time. But anyway, you can go to teespring.com slash iFreaks and get a T-shirt. I've ordered one. I got the long sleeve one. Anyone, Andrew, did you get the short sleeve? I got the short sleeve, the standard one. I'm actually really excited about this. This is the first time we've done T-shirts for iFreaks. Uh, I know Chuck's done them for some of his other shows, and I'm excited to have an iFreaks t-shirt to wear. As of this show, you have six days left to buy them, so time is running out. Hurry and go buy your iFreaks t-shirt. This is your last chance. Help people like Andrew. Yeah, get to the things before they need to I do. get evicted. That's right. So I've got mine. Uh, I'll probably be wearing it at all conf, so I'll be down there. Orlando? I'm ordering it as we speak. He's ordering as we speak. He'll have it at the big conference. So you'll find one of us. Say hi. But that's it for our show. Next week, we're going to talk about Realm. And we'll see you all next week. 
This episode is sponsored by Mad Glory. You've been building software for a long time, and sometimes it gets a little overwhelming. Work piles up, hiring sucks, and it's hard to get projects out the door. Check out Mad Glory. They're a small shop with experience shipping big products. They're smart, dedicated, will augment your team, and work as hard as you do. Find them online at madglory.com or on Twitter at madglory. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Would you like to join a conversation with the iFreaks and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a forum that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. You can sign up at iFreakShow.com slash forum. 